forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners. And if you would like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And whether it's out of the goodness of your heart or a burning desire for blog entries and bonus episodes, you can donate some money and keep this podcast going. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. I have written about this before, but one of the strangest moments of my life in a life that has been full of strange moments was me on the subway and a man running up to me in order to speak in very quick German about how much I looked like Wagner's wife, Cosima. It was a bizarre experience. First of all, because I didn't follow most of it. I had just recently moved to Berlin. My German skills were terrible. But once he switched to English and he started talking about not just that I look like Cosima Wagner, but I was Cosima Wagner reincarnated. I had no idea who she was. I'd recently been introduced to the opera, but I hadn't gotten to my Wagner phase yet. So I went home and I Google image searched and holy shit, we look exactly alike. The benefit, I guess, of this is that I now get to see what I look like when I'm really old and I am going to look amazing. You can Google image search. She, with her nose and her hair, she's a glorious old lady, but this is beside the point. I didn't really enjoy the information that I looked like a wife, especially once I started reading about Cosima, who was not just the typical wife of the genius, but the wife of the genius, the woman who sacrificed everything, who martyred herself, who devoted every moment of her life to creating the legend that is the Wagner opera. So I'm a little bit ambivalent, but I'm interested. I'm interested in historically how this role has given lives to women made their lives interesting, allowed them to be devoted to art, gave them access to resources they wouldn't necessarily have. It's a compromise, yes, but we compromise ourselves in so many ways anyway. So my friend, Jennifer Porto, who is an opera singer and who I've collaborated with in the past on a show that was performed in a wonderful little red tent outside the Leipzig Opera House, we decided we wanted to do a show about the wives of composers, focusing primarily on Cosima Wagner and Alma Mahler, because they sort of offer these interesting two wholly different archetypes of what it means to be the wife of a genius. And so in this episode, we discuss the problem of the wife and why there is so little good literature on a role that has been centuries old, millennia old. Why is it so mistreated and dismissed? I was watching A Star is Born, obviously the Judy Garland version, not the Lady Gaga version. Obviously. Obviously. 
Um, which is a movie about a man who is so intimidated by his wife's success that he walks into the fucking sea, right? Like that's the sort of, sorry for spoilers. It's from the fifties. Everybody can get over it. But, um, but yeah, it's, um, uh, a, a movie about two creative people trying to be in a relationship and the, and the wife is more successful. And so the husband would rather walk into the sea than deal with his envy and feelings of worthlessness. And I have dated writers. And so I feel like I can say that it's an accurate portrayal of that relationship. Wow. Sure. Uh, So let's talk about A A Star is Born. I know that you are uh, also a Judy Garland fan. Um, Judy is amazing. She is everything. She is everything. Um, How do you, how do you, when did you first watch the movie and what, what, what's your, what do you feel about it? I first watched A Star is Born when Netflix used to send you CDs in the mail. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for things to have sent to me in the mail by Netflix. Sure. And I ordered A Star is Born. And it was not the Judy Garland um, version. I know it was from 19, it was the original from 1937. Well, that one's good too. I was worried it was the Barbara Streisand. No, no. It was good. The problem was it was some sort of retrospective of that. So you would have the movie, but then you would have the audio in the background while there were stills from the set design. And so you didn't actually get to see the movie. It was very... That's very weird. It was disappointing. It was really frustrating. And then I was sort of on a mission to see the Judy Garland version. And I was so blown away. I'd known her, of course, from uh, my childhood. But seeing her in this role was absolutely incredible because she is such a consummate performer in that movie and in really everything that she does. Yeah. And also, I guess it's slightly autobiographical because her husband was also very intimidated by her success and undermining and weird. Um, but I do think it's a a constant in um, uh, women, successful women, powerful women um, who marry men in their own fields, which I think you should just we should stop marrying men. Do not marry men that do the same thing that you do. It's so bad. Don't do it. It's the worst idea that anybody has ever had. Um, Not that that doesn't mean that men shouldn't get over their shit and deal with their feelings. But at the same time, like maybe just don't invite that into your life by just sort of marrying a failed actor. If you're an actress, if you're Judy Garland, maybe. I think you want to come home at the end of the day and be able to talk to your spouse about the shitty things that happened to you that day. And if they had a really fantastic day doing the exact same thing that you did, it's hard for them maybe to be sincere. They're like, "Mm, oh, I'm so sorry. Your day was so hard. My day was amazing. Look at the amazing dance number that I did with no takes on this huge couch. Kind of just. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah. The best scene in the movie. (laughs) She thinks she's cheering him up by showing how amazing she is and how wonderful her life is going. And she's like, I'm going to do a number for you. And he's just like slowly dying inside. (laughs) And I love that she just keeps going and keeps going and it just gets better and better and better. Yeah. 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 But I, you know, as someone who's dated writers like I've dated a writer who if I sort of said that I had a good day writing and I you know I, I've got 2,500 words like good words on, on my book or whatever like he would get so angry at me because his writing wasn't going as well and I was so I was just not allowed to say it out loud I just had to keep it inside but I didn't do it I didn't dance on the furniture about it like I didn't I didn't bring out props 
which she brings out props, which are also very good. Very good props. Judy Garland. Uh, shout out to the props master of yeah, whoever, 1954, Stars Born. Thank whoever you. Whoever that was. Um, and so obviously there's a new version, which I, we have not seen. No, not yet. But it's sad that you can see it being remade exactly as is and it being still sort of emotionally relevant that a man would be freaked out by uh, his his wife's success and walk into the sea. He doesn't walk into the sea in this one, though. Does he drink himself to death or something? Does he shoot himself in the he head? He doesn't, so I... Oh, he just lives? Oh, that's so funny. He doesn't live. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> we should stop talking about this because actually this would oh my be gosh, like a spoiler. Oh, my gosh, spoilers. Yeah. I mean, no, fuck spoilers. Anyway. I mean, I had, to, I had to look and see because I wanted to... I always need to prepare myself for a movie by reading about the plot online before so that I'm not yeah, overwhelmed. Me too. Me too. <laughs> it's horrible. It's ruined so many things for me. But it's like I protect a part of myself when I do that. And I read about what happens uh, at the end of this movie. And um, spoiler alert, it doesn't end any differently than any of the other ones. Just not with the sea involved. Just not with the sea. Mm, it was kind of a nice scene with, it, with the, I mean, there was like a sunset and it was nice and it was, you know. Um, it was a good scene in the original one, or not the the second one. It was beautiful. It was well lit. Um, so Hadley, so I haven't seen it, but I, Hadley Freeman wrote several pieces on it. Actually, I mean, it really got under her skin. Um, what did remake. she say? So she writes for the Guardian, and uh, she pointed out. So Bradley Cooper has been doing this press tour, and he's been talking about you know. It's not, there's less envy. There's less, it's, he finds, uh, he's not as envious of his wife's success uh, because he feels his, his feelings of despair or whatever come from something else, but whatever. But expl made explicit in the movie is that instead of her just being better than him, because that's sort of a part of the other a star is born is like she's just a better performer. She's just, you know, more interesting, not a self-destructive drunk. Um, she becomes a sellout. So she becomes successful, not because of her talent, but because she's, she willingly plays into the machine, which um, doesn't really happen in the other movies um, because he's a playing it. He's in the machine too. Like he's just as much of a sort of pawn in the system as well. Um, so in the movie, he is the pure artist and she's the pop star. And so, and so it's like, it's still this weird level of control where he can think of himself as superior because his wife is a, a product of um, the pop industry. I remember reading a few pieces about it, talking about the type of character that Jackson Maine is and the type of musician that he is. And then questioning the 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 writers questioning, could could he do a stadium tour? Could he play to that many crowds? Right. And no. I just have to say, okay, but maybe he does. Let's imagine that Jackson Maine does play to that that to the stadium crowds. You are a part of the machine. If you are a touring musician who plays stadium crowds, yeah. You are just as much a part of the machine as Katy Perry is. That just because you don't like wear twirly things on your tits and like dye your hair pink or whatever. Yeah, you're still you're still in the industry. You're still compromising. You're still. Yeah, it's Completely. not a pure art form. Nothing is a pure art form. No. Yeah. Anyway, so fuck you, Bradley Cooper is all I have to say. I don't know. Like his his weird bloated 
tan alcohol face like in the trailer did not make me want to see that movie also i want to see it because i really love lady gaga yeah me too but maybe somebody would do a cut where they put like another face on his face (laughs) i really loved watching him in alias many many years ago Uh he was pretty for yeah yeah but he had that smarmy anyway i know it was great oh Mm. So we're talking about wives because we're writing about wives. We are. And so we're talking, we've been trying to talk about and think about um, how wives are portrayed and written about and thought about both in sort of like uh, pop culture um, and I think just like in conversation um, Mm -hmm. and also just in, you know, high art Um, because we're doing a piece on, um, Alma Mahler and Cosima Wagner, um, a show. Do you yeah. want to tell us tell us about the show? Um, yes. You and I are both wives. <laughs> oh my God, we're wives. Um, and the idea is to look at these two, specifically these two women, Cosima Wagner, Alma Mahler, or Alma Mahler Werfel, and to contextualize their experience but through a prism of pop songs from this century yeah yeah motherfucker yeah which is kind of the best thing maybe i will ever do in my life yeah it's gonna be really good (laughs) (laughs) i i hope so but to look at that experience like this experience of being a woman and being a wife and to make that it is a universal experience in many ways and i think think that that's that i think that's what we want to do and look at that specifically with these two women because they were attached cosima obviously to richard wagner um but alma was attached to so many different men not all of whom she married yeah um they are two different archetypes of wifedom right i mean cosima is a very devoted uh the the very devoted wife to the point where when they when they went to go have their portrait taken she he wanted them to be standing side by side and she's like no i'm going to kneel at your feet which is my natural position this is my favorite story <laughs> i love her um anyway so she had like some masochistic like i think an actual ten- masochistic i think she hit her hit herself tendencies um you know like slapping herself for jesus kind of stuff but mm-hmm. um um, so she's like the very sort of devoted to the point of being kind of parasitical, um, or subjugated, like willing subjugation, abjection. Um, and then we have Alma who is the uncontainable wife, the sort of slutty, flirty, everybody was terrified of her in the most delightful ways. Everyone also wanted to fuck her. Probably everyone. And they did. They (laughs) did. They did. So um, what's your favorite story about Alma? Because I have a favorite story about Alma. I need to hear your favorite story about Alma. Um, I don't know how to say this guy's name. Oscar Kokoschka. Is that it? Fucking. Okay. So um, when they broke up, uh, he was so fucked up by that experience, by the breakup, that he had a doll constructed in her image, which freaked everybody out. Like I read this book, it had like diaries and letters from his friends where like Oscar brought his doll to the dinner party again today. 
And so he would take it to the opera, but it was, and I've seen pictures of it and it's deeply disturbing, but it's like a life-size doll with, I guess, anatomical parts that he could put his penis into um, and sleep in his bed and go out to the opera with, but like in the, in the exact image of Alma. And he sent her, the artist who constructed it, which I think was a woman, um, like all these pictures of Alma and these very specific things about what her skin felt like that he wanted to have recreated and everything. Like he was really obsessed with her. And that's my favorite Alma story. And and she knew about the doll and she was just like this fucking lunatic. I don't think one could have a different favorite story about Alma Mahler. (laughs) Like whatever mine would have been. No, I'm changing it. That is also my favorite story about Alma Mahler because that is so fucked up. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Um, so why these two women for you? I think it's a little bit about what you said earlier. There's two, these two different archetypes of, of wifedom, of being a wife. And I love that there is a removal of time from them. Like they're not women today. And a lot of them, um, a lot about them, ugh, we don't necessarily know a lot about them because of the way that they chose to preserve in Cosima's um, case, the way that she chose to sort of preserve Richard's legacy and to like really construct this narrative. And with Alma, because she did exactly the same thing with Mahler and this idea of being sort of savvy about how you want the world to remember you, knowing full well, the world is going to remember you and the world is going to remember you not as yourself, but as your husband's wife Mm -hmm. and in a fucked up way, deciding to control that, which is scary and genius. Yeah. And I think also because these two types of wives are um, not well written about like or when we think of a wife when we and especially like the wife of a genius we don't think about um somebody like alma maybe someone like kozuma although she took everything way too far like including her uh anti-semitism but um she she always sort of took things to an extreme that we i think we wouldn't actually expect um, so the, in general, the artist's wife is either like the secretary or the sort of devoted servant or the long suffering wife or whatever. But this sort of idea of somebody whose entire sense of, um, not so much self, but of legacy, I guess, is tied up in being like, I am this genius's wife. And if my husband isn't actually a genius, like I'm going to drag him into sort of this genius state. Yeah. Um, because that's my other favorite thing about Cosimo is that she tried to marry a genius before. And then he had some sort of nervous breakdown and stopped composing and then showed up, showed to be like just like a total fuck up mediocre person. And so she just started fucking Wagner and having Wagner's kids in her marriage to this other guy and then naming the children after characters from Wagner's operas just in case nobody got it. <laughs> just to rub everybody's face in it a little bit more of being like, no, this is my daughter Isolde. I can't imagine where you may have heard that name before. Bless her and her. Wow. I love her. Anyway. She's like a Kardashian. But then, 
Yeah, but like a masochistic one, like with a high collar. I also, I think we also want to do the show because you are blonde and I'm a brunette and Cosima was blonde and Alma was a brunette. Plus I look very much like Cosima. And I like to imagine that I look like a young Alma Mahler. I can see it. In the right lighting, at the right <laughs> angle. I'm a dead ringer for We're young Alma. We're going to make Alma. a doll of you. Please don't, please don't do that. That would be disgusting. <gasps> that would be disgusting. But I think, you know, also one of the things that sort of set me off, you know, once we started talking about doing the show, um, I had been watching um, Mozart in the Jungle and there's this episode where um, they sort of hallucinate whatever the ghosts of these compose of the wives of composers sort of show up and it's like Fanny, Fanny Mendelssohn and, and uh, Schumann and all, you know, whatever, like all, all the sort of big names, but they're portrayed as being like victims or not victims, but like sad and um, overlooked by history. Yeah. Overlooked by history. And, and, um, but yeah, like in this sort of victim space as if they didn't, as if they had no free will, as, as if they spent their whole lives in abject misery um, because uh, they were, you know, undiscovered geniuses and, and that sort of thing. Um, which I think is just a limited way of thinking about what a life like that is. Um, because both Alma Mahler and Cosima um, I mean, Alma especially, like, seemed to have like a really good time. She had a great time. Yeah, she was also a composer, and she, I think, left behind seventeen songs, maybe eighteen, because one is unpublished still. Um, they're not that great. Yeah, that's the thing, which like- is kind of heartbreaking to have to say. Clara Schumann also wrote some songs. They're also not that great. Aww. I mean, they're not bad, right. but I don't know if she had not been Clara Schumann, if we would still program her music. If Alma Mahler hadn't been married to Gustav and Gustav hadn't said to her, you need to stop writing. Oh, just kidding. Now I'll orchestrate your songs because I love you. Mm-hmm. Please you know, come back. I don't know if people would be interested in performing Alma Mahler's songs mm-hmm. in the same way that people aren't really inter- interested in performing the songs of Louis Spohr. Right. I mean, so this is kind of this endless conversation in the literary community about F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda, where it's this idea that Zelda is this unheralded genius. Um, and the truth is, like, her book is just not... The one book that she managed, that she wrote, um, that she completed, is not very good. It has some nice moments. It's completely unstructured and whatever. And they had this relationship where, you know, uh, she would say things and then they would end up in his novels, or she would write something down and he would steal it for her novels. And that's, and and so the idea of sort of like heralding her as this lost genius is very, sort of. Um, very simplified way of, uh, or naive way of talking about it because in the end, like she didn't do what he did, which was just sit your ass down every day and write a book, right? So she had these sort of moments of genius um, that he was able to use, but she didn't do the work. And if you don't do the work, then I mean, yeah. Sadly. So I, I do think that, you know, if coming from the sort of post 
um, three waves of feminism place. We look at people who did compromise, women who did compromise um, in, in their marriages and in their artistic um, experiences as being sort of victims of the time while also not wanting to acknowledge in the, all the ways that we compromise ourselves these days because of the market or because whatever the fuck. What are, all the ways that we're doing it, we, we think of ourselves as having like a, a very sort of pure experience. Mm-hmm. And so we need them to be victims. Um, but in, in reality, I think we're all kind of the same in the same place. I think we also like to think about someone like Alma as a composer. Oh, but what could she have done? Like if yeah, he yeah, wouldn't yeah. have prevented her, what could she have done? Yes, maybe those, you know, first songs from 1911 weren't so fantastic, but oh my God, 1915 is a lot different. And then what can happen after that? And what would she have been in the thirties? What, you know, how great could she have become? Um, I think because we also like to think about ourselves like, oh, had I not, God, had I not compromised? Jesus, where could I be right now? But also we want to, you know, blame it on somebody else and be like, well, if my dad hadn't, you know, discouraged me from math or whatever, I could have been an astronaut, whatever, whatever it is. Like, so Mm -hmm. we're sort of projecting our sense of failure or frustration on these women who deserve actual more credit for what they did because, you know, Alma Mahler, she may have not been a sort of composer of music, but she was a composer of Dick. So I think that that's, you know, she had a good time, I think. She had a great time with a lot of different men. Do you remember all the men that she had a great time with? I can't list them, but can you? (laughs) Everybody, it should be part of the Wikipedia page. Like, it should she be part- was look her up. And you- this is not. I just need to be clear that this is not slut shaming. This is slut celebration. Like she was magnificent. She was so magnificent that everybody wanted that because she is. She was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, I mean, she was just one of these people who, um, yeah, so you know, lit up a room, but also terrified people um she also held salons regularly in vienna and then when they had to leave in 1938 she held salons in england and then she held them in los angeles like Mm -hmm. people were completely drawn into her sphere she was an incredible individual Mm -hmm. and i'll be playing her yes (laughs) and i'll just be the masochistic kozama hey jessa yeah can i tell you another one of my favorite kozama stories always okay so she was dating this guy And they were on a boat crossing Lake Geneva together and he proposed marriage. And she was like, no, because she had this idea that, you know, she wanted to be married to a genius, that that was her role in life was to be the wife of a genius. And this guy was just like some fucking asshole kid. So um, he proposed. She said, no, he said, I will throw myself into the lake if you won't marry me. And she said, go ahead. And so then they had to fish him out of Lake Geneva. They had to stop the boat and get and get him out of the lake. <laughs> but she was, you know, she didn't have the sort of like sexual magnetism of Alma or um, sort of uh, artistic magnetism of Alma. But she had, you know, everyone who came across her Everybody who came to, you know, pay tribute to her husband, you know, so many, you know, Henry James even sort of said that she was the genius of the couple. She was the obvious genius of the couple, Um, that there was just something about her, like her intellectual and sort of, I guess, 
psychological power and self-control that people came away from it being like um, fully impressed and transformed by just having a conversation with her. I think that you have to be a really special person to get through the day with Richard Wagner yeah. as your husband. I know. And with he's, his kids. He's got like the, he's got this neck beard thing. Neck beard. Oh my God. My husband is obsessed with that neck beard. Not in the way of like, he's gonna, he's not gonna do it, is he? Just like Please, if he Jesus. does, just shave it off in the middle of the night. Just like, <laughs> and if you accidentally slit his throat, like he probably was asking for it with that neck beard. Um, yeah, so I have an alabaster bust of Wagner in my house, and it's with the fucking neckbeard. So I think every bust of Wagner is with the neckbeard. Oh because it was like so dignified and just really. Is there never, is there not like another name? Is it like a chin strap or is that more on? Mm, no, because that's the chin up. strap is, and it's not, it's like more of a strap, but this was a full beard. Yeah, like on his neck. Across the, yeah, it's maybe, disgusting. Maybe it was his way of owning the fact that he had an extremely hairy neck. Or maybe he was just trying to hide his double chin because he was kind of pudgy. I do know people that do that. Yeah. And then you see them without it and think to yourself, you are better with. But he doesn't have anything on his face, which is what makes it so disturbing. So it's just the neck. It's just the worst part of it. It's only the abomination. I really want to look at a picture of it right now. Oh my God, please don't show that to me. I won't be able to take it. I really do. Um, so... Ma Alma Mahler was sort of like less involved in um, Mahler's um, afterlife sort of legacy. I mean, it, you know, in comparison to Cosima, who made that sort of her life's work after he, her husband died. Um, and um, but that seems like a, a part of it is like, so I'm going to ask you to tell the story about Hamilton's wife, which you relayed to me earlier. OK, so I saw Hamilton, the musical. Um and was incredibly struck by a song sung by the character Eliza, who is the wife of Alexander Hamilton. She sings it in the second act. What has happened is uh, America has been created. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And Hamilton has an affair with a prostitute. And he is going to be blackmailed by his political enemies. And instead of allowing them to blackmail him, he publishes the letters between him and his mistress in the papers. And he gets ahead of it to talk about that in today's terminology. And it actually helps him out politically. It's incredible. And the effect, though, is that his wife, Eliza, is mortified by his decision to do that. And the way that they the way that she dealt with it was to burn correspondence. And it's this amazing moment in the second act and it's really kind of a weak character unfortunately otherwise but it's a weak character because she doesn't we there is no record of her we don't know a lot about her and the the lyrics talk about how how she decides that she is taking herself out of the narrative she is not going to let herself be a part of alexander hamilton's legacy she says you can write all about you that you want, but you don't own me. You don't get to have my story. I'm just, I'm removing myself from your retelling of this story. And I, it's a moment that really gives me goosebumps, even as I talk about it right now. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, so um, after W. Somerset's mom died, 
it's sort of everybody was taking their shots at him. Like all of his ex lovers were writing books about him and like really kind of vindictive and trying to sort of, you know, correct the record kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me think that I should kill everybody that I ever slept with so that they can't do that when I'm dead. Well, that would be really sad. You don't know anyone that that would that you would miss. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's fantastic, Jessa. Oh my god. <laughs> Okay, touche. <laughs> but I think that that's such, yeah, that that idea of I'm removing myself from your story is fantastic. And then everybody just has to guess. Like the idea of, you know, somebody trolling through, oh, my God, I had this dream one time um, about my ex who's a writer where there, it was a panel of um, men who were debating whether or not that writer and I had ever been in love, like going, reading our biographies and stuff. And uh, that gave, I woke up with like this deep existential fear um, from, yeah, from that dream. So yeah, this, I I like this very much. Yeah. uh, Hamilton, Eliza Hamilton. I want to, I want to read you this quote. The, it's not this quote, this, this is lyrics further down. The, the world has no right to my heart. The world has no place in our bed. They don't get to know what I said. I'm burning the memories, burning the letters that might have redeemed you. And I love that. Yeah, she, yeah. She's not letting him control it and she's not letting him define who she is. Ultimately, history history doesn't forget her. She went on to do incredible things also in his name, um, but it's independent of him in so many ways. I think that's why I like Alma Mahler so much is that she can't be reduced down to the sort of typical wife role that she did so much outside of and after him um, that, you know, you can't sort of even, it, it comparatively Mahler's part of her life is um, very limited. Like it's, it's, in comparison of everything that she did and everyone that she fucked, he, you know, it was um, it was just a part of it. It was a small part of it. I love that she is uncontainable, even in, you know as a and she's an she is a very important part of his story, and he is an an important part I of her story. But he yeah. is not the most important most important part of her story. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah such a yeah I love that so much. She is not a reliable narrator. <laughs> no. They call it the Alma problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Lorenzo de Ponte, who was the librettist for uh, Mozart's three um, most famous Italian operas, wrote an autobiography that is mostly bullshit. But no one talks about the Lorenzo problem. Right. Which is something that kind of upsets me as well. Yeah. My autobiography is going to be such nonsense. Can I write it? Oh, my God. I'm yes. not a writer. Yes. <laughs> it will just be transcriptions of these kinds of conversations. Um, you yeah. came to my house and like had dinner and shit. And I'll be like, I think she was here. And this is what she said. And that goes in the autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely what she said. Um, so in the process of writing this, which we haven't really. Anyway, so. um as we're sort of thinking about this, the I was getting angry because okay, so now now that we're doing this, I have been actively looking for 
contemporary or at least sort of post first wave feminist um, writing about what it is, what the role of being a wife is. And I found either garbage or lies or nonsense. (laughs) Those are the three categories for the most part that um, it's such a misunderstood and stereotyped role that there's very little good literature or storytelling. And so I was complaining to you about the movie, The Wife, um, which recently came out with uh, Glenn Close, who's amazing in it, um, and Jonathan Price, who um, I, you know, Brazil is one of my favorite movies, so I will see anything that he's in. Um, But he plays a Nobel Prize winning writer, or he's just won the Nobel Prize. And so he and his wife go to Sweden to deal with that whole situation. But in the in the process, it comes out, you know, and she's feeling sort of left out and she's feeling um, sidelined um, and disrespected. But then it turns out that it's not because just that she's um, a wife and like a lot of writer's wives has been secretary, editor, manager, agent, all that shit that you, no one ever pays you for. Um, it's that she wrote all of his books to the point where he doesn't seem to know the content of a couple of his books. Somebody names his, one of his characters and he's like, oh, who's that? Um, and so it just becomes like this weird um, um, strangling of the story. It's like, it's not enough to just say what the role of being the wife of somebody like that is and of making that compromise and of choosing that life. Um, And so, and so doing the sort of uncredited work and the psychological reality of what that is like, it has to be that she's the unheralded genius and the, the actual writer of the couple. And I think that's just so disingenuous that it made me really angry. It's unfortunate because it's like her story isn't enough. Yeah. It's like people don't trust that if she's not the ghostwriter, she's not worth anything. And that's just bullshit. Yeah. And it was written by a woman. The original story was written by a woman. And so I understand I understand why that story was written. Um, if somebody has been sort of historically sidelined and diminished. Um, it makes sense on a psychological level to want to make yourself bigger and to kind of um, want to exaggerate to prove that you are a person and you're visible and um, you're worth respect. But at the same time, like um, artistically, it's not interesting and it's not genuine. And it's all, yeah, like you said, it's also saying that that woman who is just the wife that her story is not interesting enough. That to me is it, it reduces a woman then just to a supporting role always. And I don't think that's how it should be. Even, even if you're a wife. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not like that's not fascinating. It's not like, okay, so after, during second wave feminism, um, it's not like it's not fascinating for a woman to 
choose something other than liberation anyway, right? Mm -hmm. To be in the middle of a revolution and to say, no, I kind of like things as they were. I want to be my mom or whatever. Like that to me is interesting, you know, and and I don't feel like there has been enough sort of examination of what that was like um, because we certainly have a lot of stories about um, women who did choose liberation and did sort of join the revolution, but we don't have a lot of stories of the women who are just like, no, I don't want to. (laughs) Um, Unless they're told by men in, in this kind of like Philip Roth, gross, disgusting way, mm-hmm. or they're told by women in the in this sort of Meg Wolitzer who wrote The Wife, um, like, no, she was the real genius the whole time kind of way. Like, it, it's people are weird and defensive about it. Mm-hmm. But it's my, you know, that's also all the women in my family, um, my, um, my mother and my aunts and everything. Like, my mother was 16 in 1968, so sort of prime for uh, embracing all these changes. And she was like, no, no, I don't think so. Um, which, I, yeah, I find interesting. I wonder if there is something valuable in, in taking the well-beaten path or the path of least resistance, mm-hmm. which is not the path that I think I want to take. Right. But I think that there might be something to that for some people sometimes. Yeah. And it's interesting. But it's interesting also that we don't want to explore that, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, not you and me, because we're going to write the shit out of it. But um, we are. We are when we talk about Cosima, um, who was a brilliant pianist. um, And probably to the point of if she had really committed herself to it, could have been at least a concert pianist, if not a composer. I mean, she was List's fucking daughter, you know. Um, she had the she had the sort of pedigree and the support, but she's no. I, I'm going to be a wife instead. We need to just take a quick look. We're not specifically talking about her, but we need to take a look at the badass that was Clara Schumann. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because she was a pianist, making a living as a pianist. She was a composer. She had she married uh, Robert Schumann. She had kids. He was going crazy because he got syphilis. Yeah. And she was managing a household and she was touring in concert. People need to be writing more shit about her because she was doing it. She was getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. But so many of those bitches were like so many, so many of the composers wives were just absolutely and not just composers, like also painters, also writers. Um, And it's interesting in and of itself. I mean, how many of them probably could have chosen like um, a very sort of bourgeois, comfortable lifestyle. And they're like, no, I'm devoted to art and this artist and I'm willing to deal with discomfort and I'm willing to deal with whatever because there it wasn't just, you know, and I think we'd like to put, oh, well, she fell in love with the the composer. It's like, no, but to actually marry somebody like that who's going to be sort of at least at the beginning, you know, if you... Uh, he he doesn't sort of reach genius, you know, um, fame and fortune right off the bat. Um, to choose a life of instability and also sort of marginalization because artists are always seen as weirdos. Um, that's a hardcore position to take. It absolutely is, um, and it should be sort of um, celebrated as such. But I love these women. Like, there's something about the composers' wives that I that I that I adore. Why? 
Um, I'm not sure. Maybe just because it's more um, the writers' wives. I don't really care about. Um, maybe because uh, as a writer myself, I find the idea a little horrifying, and I've met some writers. Um, but composers always seemed a little bit more sort of like um, crazy, crazy, yeah, <laughs> because they yeah. are crazy. Yeah, they're but- crazier than writers. Yeah. They absolutely are crazy because also they're doing something in public. I mean, it's different when you write a book and it's published and people are reading it and talking about it. But when there's a concert, I mean, and then if there's a recording and people can, like, it's a thing that is happening in public. And that makes you crazy. Yeah. Mahler was also a conductor. Crazy. Yeah. All the conductors are crazy, too. I dated a conductor. Mm. They're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I watched, like, this movie... About Stravinsky and Coco Chanel. I didn't see that. Coco and Igor. Terrible title. Um, But yeah, like his wife was just like this long suffering, like who, I mean, she basically just sang Jolene, the Dolly Parton song to Coco Chanel. Like, please don't take my man, even (laughs) though you can. Like, it was just really, (laughs) like really pathetic. And she was just like this non-person sort of like wandering around. Um, but at the same time, like Stravinsky was such an asshole, right? That he sh- he wouldn't let his wife or children speak at lunch because he would be like working on a on a line of music in his head, and if he was interrupted, like he would just freak out and scream at everybody and throw a book at their head. So lunch was entirely silent, but also he wouldn't just let them eat lunch somewhere else. <laughs> Being like that sort of invested in the music um, to be willing to suffer like that is interesting, even if it's a little misguided. I think it's extremely misguided. I don't know. I think about that and I think about just the just the day to day tedium of living with them and like picking up their dirty laundry or the towel that they threw on the floor. And that takes real real patience. Can I tell you my favorite Stravinsky story? Please. Okay. So when he was living, living in Los Angeles, it was his second wife. And now I can't remember his second wife's name. Um, but, um, she had these lovebirds and he hated the lovebirds and he thought they were insipid and their song was, um, not interesting enough. So he would post outside of their cage photos of um, like hawks and cats <laughs> to make them anxious. <laughs> wow. Stravinsky was kind of an ass. He was a total ass, but he's my favorite 20th century composer. So um, my favorite Stravinsky story um, has to deal with the composition of the Rake's Progress. Mm-hmm. And True Love, which is the just the best name of an opera character ever, is singing an aria about how she's going to go save Tom Rakewell, who has fallen into the clutches of Baba the Turk. And he's writing it, and W.H. Auden is the librettist, and he they decide like he he presents this aria that he's written for Anne to sing, I think, in the second act. And um, they they don't like it. And someone says, oh, maybe you could have it just end on a high C, which is a great note. And so then Stravinsky, the genius, just goes, do, 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 And then he does. And she ends it on a high C. And it's just an incredible, it's an amazing aria. It's in three parts. And what's fantastic about it is that it is very much this woman who was going to rescue this man. And she is the, she is not the principal 
figure in the movie. Um, Nick Shadow and Tom Rakewell are really the two principal figures, but she is there completely as this foil to Tom Rakewell, um, I guess, and also to Nick Shadow. Like she's there to rescue him. Like she's this, like she is, like they're not married, but she is Tom's wife. She is there to save him from himself. Mm-hmm. And I, in some ways, like to think about him writing this aria writing about her okay granted it's wh auden's words not his but of course he you know he said okay to all of this thinking about him in some ways recognizing maybe is just maybe this is just me being hopeful about stravinsky but like recognizing there is value in saying i will be here for this man yeah coco chanel was not by the way she totally ditched him and went to Monaco with some other guy because he was getting too intense. He started talking about leaving his wife for her and she was just like, I am not in any way interested in that. I have to go to Monaco with this other guy. We should talk, we should do, we could do like a whole other episode about Coco Chanel. Like I'm also obsessed with her in the same way that I'm obsessed with Alma Mahler. She's amazing. She was also a composer of Dick. Like she was also, yeah. How did you come up with composer of Dick? I don't know. It just came up. It just came to me in the moment. It was like this moment of inspiration, like divine inspiration. It's God, fantastic. God gave it to me. He touched you. He did. Jessa, composer <laughs> of Dick. You were talking about the good wife and it couldn't mm-hmm. just be like the story couldn't just be that she was his wife and his secretary and Alma. his agent and his cook. Well, excuse me. Are you talking about Alma or just in general? No, I'm talking okay. about the movie, The Wife. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Glenn Close's character couldn't just be his wife and his secretary and his agent and his fluffer and all of these things. She also, in order to make it a compelling story, she also had to actually have written all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Alma writes about her her participation in the composition of Mahler's fifth and sixth symphonies. And there is so much scholarly work about um, refuting the fact that she did that. Like she writes X, Y, Z and they're like, no, that was absolutely impossible because if you go and look at the manuscript score, that's absolutely not what happened. And like, why are people so obsessed with big fucking deal? Like if she thinks that they're, she was like, no, there should be less percussion and then there ended up being more percussion. Well, how do you know? And actually who even gives a fuck about it? But it's about, it's like, it's important that Alma not be that important. Yeah, I mean, how we talk about the wife reveals what we think about the male genius because we because we so often only think of the genius as a man. Mm-hmm. We need to diminish the emotional uh, uh, and work role and uh, you know all the sort of financial support and. Um, contribution and collaboration we need to diminish that in order to have a sort of pure idea of what genius is which is one guy battling the world right like one guy with his his genius ideas that just need to you know have to come out and he has to deal with it so Mm -hmm. if he has a wife as a collaborator that makes him look smaller in our eyes rather than um, somebody who was probably smart to marry a lady who knew how much percussion should be in the fucking fifth movement, right? Like the idea that we that we're supposed to be, but particularly men, uh, completely independent because femininity is weakness. I don't know if you've heard. Um, that is that. I mean, it's a really sick idea of how we think about what art is and what genius is. Um, you know, David Bowie was just 
wearing his fucking wife's clothing, um, which is true. Like the you know when he started wearing women's clothing and had the sort of um, uh, the sort of first forays into androgyny, it was his wife's wardrobe that he was dipping into. So it's not yeah. I know uh, some of the promotion for the newest A Star is Born film has been actually a fair, an okay amount has been that Lady Gaga has written all this stuff. But I think it's also, I was watching videos today about her process to write this. And I kept thinking to myself, if this were a man, this would be like this huge thing, like major recording artist who is an incredible musician and a phenomenal singer and sort of do anything that she wants to do. Um, reworks how she writes music for this movie. And if this were a man, if this had been a man doing it, that would be a much bigger selling point. Like, oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. 1987 Bono. Yeah. Can you imagine if he had done that? Yeah. But Lady Gaga did that. And no one is making, I think, as big a deal about it as they should. No, everybody's just writing giant profiles about Bradley Cooper because he directed a movie and we're so impressed because like he's too pretty to have probably like much of a brain. I mean, I'm sorry, Bradley Cooper, but you're too pretty. I don't know. He is pretty, but I don't know that you can get that far as he's gotten without being. No, I think he's very sort of clever and um, um, especially sort of worming his way out of sort of I think how Hollywood wanted to use him which was as the douchebag right right um he's so working he, I mean he was very smart about like who he wanted to work with and the role yeah. he's wanted yeah. wanted to take but we're treating him like he's too pretty to have a thought in his head so isn't it good I mean it's amazing that he directed like a movie and it's good and now he's being compared like there was a piece that compared him to Scorsese and Fellini and somebody else and it was just too much. It was just like, whoa, 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 he, whoa, he, he did an okay job, probably. Like, probably he, it was just an okay job. It but did have He a, might win like a best director Oscar because everyone's like, oh my God. It's like like seeing an ostrich like um, type, type of story. I mean, something. if I can dish a bit, I think it's a little bit because Brad Pitt didn't take on that role. Yeah. Like Brad Pitt, super, super hot, hot wife ex-wife now and didn't sort of ascend to that and I feel like people are looking for okay someone like George Clooney who is his movie the movies who directs are also way overpraised they're mostly garbage yeah but he's uh hot yeah he's very pretty but again like we have lower standards for pretty men like anytime they do anything at all oh my god He's so, I didn't know he had these hidden depths. Like, anyway. It's so true. Yeah. But can I, going, like, just to circle back to A Star is Born. Every day of the week, let's circle back to A Star is Born. James Mason. <gasps> the the scenes of his drunkenness, which I had forgotten that Dorothy Parker was one of the writers of that movie. She was. And so all of her, all of his, like, drunken, witty quips are just sort of obvious Dorothy Parker. But... The scenes at the beginning where he is drunk are fucking phenomenal. Like the way that he is on this knife edge of total like joy and benevolence that just turns into this dark violence in a second. I haven't seen a performance of drunkenness like that. Um, that is actually just not somebody just like kind of squinting his eyes and slurring his words and, you know, moving around in a weird way. It was 
Fantastic. I forget exactly where in the film it happens. She's on stage performing in a number with two other guys. Yeah. And they're doing that great choreography together. Mm-hmm. And then he sort of drunkenly erupts from backstage. Yeah. And it is fantastic to it's watch so him. Yeah. Also yeah. to like see this him him as this like this actor playing this actor who suddenly realizes I'm on stage. Literally in the spotlight. Yeah. I have to somehow get my shit together, but I am so drunk that it's hilarious. And she has to help him dance by like moving his arms around. <laughs> and he doesn't even know what's going on. But it's he's so, so aware of the audience there. Yeah. But also you can tell that he doesn't he is not ready to go off stage. Yeah. No, he there's like this like simmering anger that's it's a great performance. They both give amazing performances. James Mason is amazing. Notorious is one of my favorite films. He's so anyway. I love James Mason. So good. I like Judy Garland a lot more though. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, she's transcendent. I mean, the man who got away, the man that got away in that film is, I watched, I just watched that performance. Like uh, when I was watching the movie, I was just like, let's just rewind it. And then 10 times in a row. Yeah. So I started singing a lot of the repertoire that I like to sing now because of that performance of that song in that movie, because it's also so, it's so painful. Like every, every moment of her singing is so imbued with so much emotion it's hard to not watch it like 40 times in a row and the way like yeah there's this moment where she musses up her hair like her perfect hair and it's a perfect moment to muss up her hair in that song and then afterwards like james mason comes up to her and is like you sing like a prize fighter and i was like yes oh my yes Yes, she does she does it's kind of busted in the best way possible yeah yeah oh judy Judy, we love you. I'm sorry you married an asshole. Anyway. I am happy she had Liza. Yeah. Oh, God. We'll do another. We'll just do another episode about just the movie Cabaret. (laughs) Oh, please. Let's just all about like, let's just talk through Liza. (laughs) Have you seen Arrested Development? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's all good, but she's incredible. She's incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's. She's incredible in everything. Cabaret was one of those things where um, I watched it too young. And so I thought I didn't like it. And then sort of rewatched it only just a couple of years ago. And was like, holy fuck. But then I was like in this whole Bob Fosse thing. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you have to have a Bob Fosse phase. Um, But yeah, no, it's it's phenomenal. You have probably seen, and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember which concert it was of Judy's, but you've seen when she introduces uh, Liza on stage and they come out and they sing a duet together. And it's this this incredible moment of Judy Garland, this really this icon bringing out her daughter and this like struggle between maternal pride and love and jealousy about, oh shit, She's younger. She's got better moves than I do right now. She's not old and and an alcoholic and busted yet. And she was dead pretty soon after that, right? Yeah. Judy, she died before 50, like four, in her 40s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jessa. Yeah. Sorry to depress everybody. Um, any, any last thoughts, any last stories of Alma Mahler or Cosima to take us out on a high note? You'll have to see the show. Okay. Okay, you heard it. You heard it here first. Good night. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. 
Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.